the diamond, I The Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. Wow, these are pure bling. High heels studded with diamante work, pink heel, very high heel, stiletto, dark blue or possibly even black upper. The interior is sort of silver colour. I guess the heels must be four inches at least, if not five. Um, I don't know how comfortable they'd be to wear, but they would certainly have quite an impact, I think, when they're worn. These shoes belong to Aisha Novakovic. This is her story. It's interesting when people meet me and they think, oh, you don't have an accent or, you know, you have very Australian sensibilities, even though I am a Muslim woman of Indonesian Yugoslav heritage. All of my cultural references are Australian because I was literally raised by Australian foster carers. My name is Aisha Nancy Novakovic. I was born in Indonesia and I came to this country when I was six weeks old and I'm the eldest of four daughters. My father, who was Yugoslav, brought my mother from Indonesia um, to Australia where he was working as a miner. We lived in Kupapiti for my very early childhood until he died. It was such a difficult time after my father passed away. My mother... She was only 27 years old and she had four girls under the age of four and a half. She was socially and culturally isolated. She had no support network. She didn't have very much money and she had no qualifications. She had a mental breakdown and she became hospitalised. That left me to be literally the head of the household and I had to grow up very quickly. We were homeless because my mum was in hospital a lot. The four of us ended up in foster care homes. So we had a very unstable childhood. Even though my father was Greek Orthodox, they had an agreement that all four girls would be raised as Muslims. But the thing is, my mother wasn't very religious herself. It didn't go beyond more than, oh, we're not allowed to eat pork. After my father passed away... Her brother, who was an Islamic studies teacher, decided to change all of our names to so-called Muslim-sounding names. So Nancy became Aisha, and then, you know, Katerina became Hadija and so on. And then my mother also decided to send us to Sunday school at the local mosque in Adelaide. And that's where we learned how to pray and how to read the Quran, and we learned Arabic. So then it came time to choose a high school, and my mother decided to move us to Perth, where there was a Muslim school. But I actually hated it there. That actually instigated my own search for the truth. I was taught by the imam that it would be compulsory for a Muslim woman to wear a hijab or a headscarf when she reached the age of puberty. And I had challenged him on this point. Why is it that women have to cover but men don't? And I decided that I didn't want to be a blind follower. I started off with the proposition of, well, okay, if I'm supposed to wear the scarf, well, let's go one step back. Am I in the right religion? If Islam is not correct, are there other religions that are more truthful or suitable for me? Then I thought, well, hang on, let's go one step back again. Is there even a God? 
What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? And how did we get here? And why should we worship this so-called creator? And that was at 11. And it meant that I started to read really widely. I got copies of the Bible and the Quran. I asked questions of all kinds of people. And through that process, I was able to come to a deep and satisfying understanding of why a Muslim woman should wear a hijab. After that, it became really easy for me to go against all the social norms, including deciding to put on a headscarf. Two years later, I decided to cover my face and wear the full face veil or the niqab, as we call it. Uh, my mum did not like that at all. People started to wonder if I'd taken it too far, if I'd become fanatic, because it's all I ever talked about, religion, Islam. By the time I graduated from high school, I was still wearing the niqab. I was invited to become a political advisor to the Premier Jeff Gallup on his anti-racism steering committee. Even then, I still didn't hold back. But that came from a really deep sense of social justice. Perhaps at times I was misguided and also very fiery. I mean, I was, I was 18 years old, still finding my feet philosophically and politically and even in my own feminist ideals and how that would sit comfortably with my Islamic beliefs. But, yeah, I was very active in that space and it came from a deep sense of wanting to see equity and equality for everyone in our society, especially because I was at the receiving end of a lot of abuse and religious vilification. I mean, you can imagine being a young Muslim woman dressed head to toe. Look, I get it. It is absolutely confronting. And even now, when I go outside... I wear hijab and I still dress modestly. But when I see a woman dressed in, in black head to toe, I find it confronting. It's just the visual. There were always looks and stares and the occasional swear were thrown my way. But I was strong. You know, I, I had a really thick skin. That changed after 9-11 and after I got married at 19 and fell pregnant and had my baby and I was hormonal and I was emotionally weak. It started to wear me down and as the abuse mounted and it became a daily occurrence, it was impossible for me to even leave my house. My uh, then husband, he also didn't like the attention that I was receiving. And we sat down one day and we had a frank discussion and he wanted me to remove it. So reluctantly, I decided, look, if it's going to negatively impact my marriage, you know, that's a priority. I should remove the face veil because I don't believe that it's compulsory for Muslim women to cover their face. It's optional. So I removed it. I felt really naked. It took a long time for me to adjust to that change and also for people in my community to go, ah, this is Asia. We haven't seen her face since, like, 1997. And I think there's a stereotype that when you see a woman who's covered, she's been forced by some man in her life. In actual fact, it wasn't just my then husband, but I know of a lot of practising religious Muslim men who are asking their wives, you know what, darling, you don't have to wear it. You're inviting a lot more trouble and headache than is necessary. Why don't you take it off? You can still dress modestly. So I would say 
let's not be so quick to judge and to question why a woman might be wearing it. The first incident of domestic violence arose when I was six months pregnant and we were having an argument, we were in the car and yeah, he decided to throw me out of the car when I was six months pregnant and it was so humiliating because my face fell and everything just, it fell off and I just thought, what if the neighbours see? I was shaking like a leaf and my sisters were shocked and had to go to hospital but you know, he came back and he was so remorseful and promised it never happened again. And of course, uh, happened many more times for the next five years. I'd blame myself thinking, oh, I shouldn't have you know, pushed back, like, not literally, but as in, I shouldn't have argued back. I shouldn't have spoken back to him. I should be a better wife. He told me things like, you're not a good Muslim wife. Um, you're not going to go to heaven, you know, even though, that's not Islamically justifiable. He twisted that because he knew I believed in that and it meant something to me. So he was able to control me through that spiritual manipulation. My whole reality was warped. He became my all and everything. I tried hard to keep the family together for the sake of the children until unfortunately my children, yeah, copped some of the abuse. And then that just took it to a whole new level. In the end, he left me when I was seven months pregnant with my second son. So having to get over a lot of that anger and resentment and eventually learning how to forgive him. Never condoning his behaviour, but absolutely letting go of that tie between us and saying, you're on your own journey, but I'm not going to be... I'm not going to be the subtext in your life. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to be the main character in my own story. Aisha's story was produced by Mary Fatin. Her shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's A Mile in My Shoes exhibition. The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we're going next. <laughs>